and just be, just know that you might be sent somewhere else when we put up a sign or something. I don't know what's going to happen. <coughs> if we know in advance, we'll let you know. Or we just <laughs> may not know. <laughs> I have a referral request. My yeah. friend Sarah, who we've prayed for before, who fell and she broke sort of the left side of her body, her oh, arm, her leg, and her shoulder. Oh. She's now had the leg surgery and has pins and had a reverse shoulder replacement. She's ready. I guess the beginning of next week to go home. And from the so, hospital. From, well, from the nursing home, from the rehab yeah, facility. Right. And I, you know, I just think she's going to need a lot of prayers and a lot more patience than she maybe realizes. She's a very positive, cheerful person, but she can't do anything for herself. Yeah. And yeah, that's not it's easy. It's just going to be hard. Yeah. So. Um, it's Sarah. 80. Oh. Sarah. Sarah. Maybe 79. But, you know, <coughs> not a spring chicken. No. <laughs> Should I? Anywhere. It's not a spring chicken. Ask her to read Boethius. <laughs> well, she's, she's not complaining. It's <laughs> sort of amazing. There was Sister Carol just went into hospice uh, yesterday. Oh. She only has about two months. This cancer? Lung cancer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My daughter-in-law um, fell and broke one leg. She had surgery yesterday and badly sprained the other. So she's totally right now non-weight-bearing on both. She had surgery. She is home now, and her husband is <coughs> able to take me us and our caregiver. So we need her. What's her name? Her name's Kenna. Say? Kenna. Kenna? Uh -huh. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass. Um, <laughs> your words to us this morning are um, that you are present, you are in our midst, and that it is a time of joy. <laughs> what Boethius is making clear to us is that... Um, all the things that seem so bad are really often, no, always occasions for good if we could only see the right way, and so often we don't. So um, strengthen us in our faith, um, the gift that you gave us of yourself this morning. You call us to a cross, um, never easy. Um, help all of us um, to stay with you trusting that you know all that. You don't let, you're not a careless God. You don't overlook things. Um, you know far more deeply everything, um, far more than we do. Help us always to trust in your sight that you're doing things that we don't understand. Um, it's a part of growing in our faith. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that, particularly in the readings that we're doing. Um, so I ask for a blessing that the reading we're doing just doesn't stay in our heads, that we live it, that we really bring it into our lives to help us grow into our faith and, and maybe even more especially in some ways what we do with our powers of reason because our reason can be so, so destructive of our faith. We've seen that. Help us uh, in those ways. Um, ask for a special grace for Sarah, 
um, strengthen her in patience, let the struggles, the hardships she's suffering from strengthen her to see that it's time to do those things that she wouldn't be asked to do if she were healthy. Um, to grow in patience or trust and all the things, particularly if we're active and self-reliant um, and have to learn to depend on others and more especially trusting them. Um, be with Carol especially. Um, prepare her for her end. Um, purify her soul. Let the last days that she have she has um, be a time of letting go of her sins. Um, um, help her to let go, to turn with you, to spend these last times with you um, in everything she does with those who care for her, especially her family. And um, and ask a blessing for Kina. Um, help her recover. Um, and let her um, let a spirit of hope be strengthened in her from all that she's dealing with. And in some ways more especially for her husband. In some ways it's always harder for those who help. Um, be with them both. Um, help them to both grow closer to you in this hardship. We offer all of these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> Can you pull out the, the two poems? Next, looking ahead, um, next week I think is going to be a really important week for the work that we're doing together. I hadn't anticipated this. Um, yeah. We want you to pass out the Deutschland. Yeah, I thought it already was, but sure. Um, next week we're going to do, remember I told you we're going to bite the bullet in this, we're going to do Hopkins' The Deutschland. It's one of the hardest poems in the English language. It's not going to be easy for you guys. Susanna's been frowning at me every time. <laughs> um, um, a, a, an extraordinary poem. Extraordinary poem. But um, one of the interesting things that's going to come out in our work on it, when, when I do the background on it, is that um, we're going to... You know, I've said this before, Gerard Manley Hopkins was involved in that Tractarian movement in England which was a reform movement of the church then. I'll go into it again next week when we meet. But it's going to be interesting to see how what happens then, mid-19th century in England, picks up everything that began with um, Dante and especially Milton in the 17th century um, in the Reformation movement. Um, so it, it's going to be a really important class, um, not only because we're going to do a really difficult poem together, but because the what's going on historically in England um, is really amazing, and it says a lot about our faith, so I'm eager to get there. I wasn't thinking about what I thought about doing the Deutschland, but I've been thinking about it since, and it, it fits in so well with what we've been doing, so... <clears throat> and remember, I, my suggestion is read the read the Dutchland aloud, and remember what I've said before. 
very often we have a sense of something through our feelings long before our head can grasp them. Um, after Descartes, we want everything to be clear and distinct ideas. Uh, we want to live in our heads. Descartes said, the object of the mind is not things. We don't know things any longer. We've lost contact with the world. The object of knowledge are the clear and distinct ideas we have in our head. So there's this estrangement between us and nature. That's just a part of the modern world. It's To me it's horrible, but it, there it is. Um, when you read Wreck of the Deutschland, read it out loud and don't feel like you've got to understand it. Read it knowing that there's this almost obsession with us of wanting to make everything clear and distinct. Music doesn't do that. Poetry, an aspect of poetry, does not do that. One of the things that poetry does is relax that critical mind because of the musical aspect, and it very often presents things to us that are e evocative, that arouse things, that awaken us, to some things that are partly mysterious. So this habit of wanting everything to be clear and distinct, it, poetry, you know, <laughs> certainly from what we're doing, poetry resists that some. It's, it's the mind working towards clarity on something, but also working with the emotions to bring the two together. So if you're having difficulty with the Deutschland, don't be surprised. Just be patient and take whatever joy you can in feeling the, the music of the lines because Hopkins is a musical composer. What he's doing with the music of the lines is probably the greatest innovation in the 19th century. He actually wrote musical composition. He's going to go back to alliterative verse, Old English verse, boom, 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 boom. It's not going to be syllabic. Uh, I'll, I'll go into that. But it's just a different verse. So enjoy the rough waves while you're going over the lines as much as you can. Okay. Okay. I chose these two poems um, because I was looking for something to put off the Deutschland, actually. <laughs> um, because I, I wanted, I wanted to save the, the Deutschland for the last few classes of the of our time together before we break for summer. And I, I just happened to think about these two poems. I'm trying, I was trying to get something close to Easter, the end of Easter, and and um, that would speak to our faith. And then these things came to me, and I realized how appropriate they are. While we're, while we're reading Boethius. Because you know that Boethius is going to be executed, he's losing his life, he's facing death, it's a dark period, and philosophy comes to help make sense of things for him. Both of these poems are dealing with dark things. Wordsworth is not Christian. He, does, he doesn't deal explicitly with Christian things. And if you've read enough Wordsworth, you know that there's something, this is my judgment, there's something almost too lax. He's he gets too soft. He, 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 he initiated a revolution in, in, in his own way by, by making the, 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 poet, the language of poetry the language of ordinary men. That was, that was a radical change for language. And he's got a beautiful sense of rhythm, but, but there's something somnolent. He, he doesn't deal with hard things, just does not. But in one of these moments, Wordsworth uh, addresses that problem in this poem, that there's something wrong with the world and with us. 
and he takes it up here, so it fits with Boethius. Alan Tate, who to me um, has um, a, a much greater spirit of courage in what he did. Alan Tate was a convert. This is one of his darkest poems called The Cross, and it's hard to understand. But, um, just remember that he's looking at the cross, what the cross did to the world, what it asked of the world, what it did to men, and what happens to men when they deny it. So, and, and he's American. So there's, an on, there's a depth of honesty in what he did here that, that it's almost put me to tears sometimes. I'm not, and I'm not joking about that. It just humbles me uh, what he's doing. You'll see when we get there. So Wordsworth and Alan Tate. Okay? <clears throat> um, you know that Wordsworth is 19th century and Alan Tate is modern. Anyway, I think he died a short while ago. <clears throat> Wordsworth, the world is too much with us. The world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending. We lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that's ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. The sea that bears her bosom to the moon, that winds, the winds, that will be howling at all hours, and are upgathering now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasant lee, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. Let me just, I, I, you know that I'm reluctant to make comments, but let me just make a few brief comments. Wordsworth loved nature. If you've read Wordsworth at all, you know that that was his great love. He believed that there were these forms and these presences in nature that revealed themselves. So Wordsworth's writing at the time when the Cartesian revolution is well underway, science is well underway, and men have become estranged from nature. So in some sense, he's answering that need, that there's, he has this great love for what the rest of the world's turned away from. But in this poem, he, he, he understands, and he's not Christian. He's not Christian. He's dealing with an experience of being forlorn, as if he were left alone on a shore. That, that we have lost our way in the world, he's, and he's giving expression to that. And he says, um, in, in feeling forlorn, the way he is, that he'd rather be a pagan, having some glimpse of Proteus, um, or Triton, than a modern, because at least the pagans had some sense of the divine in nature. Okay? But the last thing he could do is turn to Christ. I mean, that was just n not something to do in the mid-19th century, particularly if you were intellectual. So it's a beautiful poem about how, in one sense, we've sold our souls. Getting and spending, we lay, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature, remember how much he loved nature. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away a sordid boon. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. Okay. We've got this sense of estrangement because we, we give ourselves over to the materialism, the worldliness of the world. It's what we did in Dante. So this is mid-19th century. It's a grievous dark poem about what's happening to the West. <coughs> and if you think that's dark, 
We come to Tate. Okay. Alan Tate. Extraordinary poem. The Cross. <coughs> now remember, wait, by the way, just for your information, um, Auden, um, early modern English poet, wrote um, a poem. I can't even remember that. But he used as, as the structure of the poem the canonical hours of the Catholic Church. I think he was a convert as well. So he structures the poem according to the hours, and in, um, I'm, I'm going to read next time. Next, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it before we break for summer and read you this one passage. It's just beautiful. Um, he, he, I should have brought it. He, he, he describes himself struggling with the hours of the day and trying to remember what he did at noon and the voices of boys yelling and fighting in the street. And he asks the questions whether poets will ever make it to heaven. Because um, he's just it, like words, he's he's overwhelmed by the noise, the chatter that you know that forms our minds today. And then suddenly, he has this moment. He prays, and it's as if peace overspreads him, washes over him, and he has this glimpse of heaven and the dance. And what he describes is the perichoresis, the indwelling. I've used that word you know, when we did Dante, the indwelling. So he describes this moment of indwelling, the dance around the tree in heaven. So the image he has is that the, the tree, the cross, will be at the center of heaven in this perichoresis with all people united in Christ because he's the one that brings everybody together. Um, Tate would have known that image. I mean, he read poet, he was a poet himself. So remember, for Auden in this one poem, um, when he looks at heaven, he sees the, the cross, the tree at the center around which people are dancing, in perichoresis, in union with each other, okay? This is the tree in hell. Because if, remember Dante, remember at the center of the inferno, people are eating each other, and then we said, if, if the center of heaven is the Eucharist that Christ offers, and there is this feast, that that's what he did here in the Eucharist to give us himself, that, um, Hell would be the opposite, and what we saw in hell is that people feast on they're eating each other instead of offering themselves. So here too, keep in mind, if there's this abiding tree for Auden, um, this is an image of what happens when you reject that tree in hell. Okay. <clears throat> there is a place that some men know, I cannot see the whole of it, nor how I came there. Long ago, flame burst out of a secret pit, crushing the world with such a light. The day sky fell to moonless black, the kingly sun to hateful night. For those once seen, turning back. For love so hates mortality, which is the providence of life, she will not let it blessed be, but curses it with mortal strife. Until beside the blinding rood, the tree, the tree, Within that world-destroying pit, like young wolves that have tasted blood of death and taste no more of it. For love so hates mortality, which is the people in our world want nothing to do with death. They want nothing to do with the cross. That's so much the nature of our world. Death, suffering. But curses it with mortal strife until beside the blinding rood, within that world-destroying pit, like young wolves that have tasted blood of death men taste no more of it so blind in so severe place all life before in the black grave the last alternative they face of life 
without the life to save. Being from all salvation weaned, a stag charged both at heel and head, who would come back is turned a fiend, instructed by the fiery dead. What he's saying is, if you've looked at Christ and you reject him, willy-nilly, you can't escape it, you become a fiend yourself. And if you remember how the sinners there were fiendish in the way that they... Uh, how's that for a... <coughs> dark poem. Important to hear these some, sometimes. Okay. Boethius. Are any poets writing about today? Any poets say say your question? Any poets writing about today? The environment. This day? Yeah. You know, Tate's not far away from us. He this is actually fairly contemporary, but I, I my honest answer to that is I and I grieve about it, Don, really. I'm so out of touch with contemporary art. One one of the great questions in my heart, truly, is and I'm saying this really on where are the Catholic musicians, where are the Catholic painters, where are the Catholic poets today? I'm not keeping up with it, but it's not a small concern for me because I believe that if we don't have that art, you know, you've been you've been experiencing that for several years, those of you who've been with, you know, been doing this now, how important art is. It's not just something to entertain us. And I don't know. I can't answer that. I, I know of some people. I know that um, Dana Joya, I think, who was the poet laureate, who is contemporary with us, um, is Catholic. And I mean, there, his verse is not, it's not catechetical. It's not, a, you know, it's, it's poetry. He's not openly proselytized, like Eliot. And he's a great poet. Um, Richard Wilbur is a contemporary whose poetry I think is among the best poetry of the 20th century. I mean, those are two names I can give you, but um, I, there, I know there's got to be more. Who they are, I don't know, because I'm just I don't I don't read anymore. I'm just too focused on this work that I've been doing. By the way, I just finished the book. Um, I think I told you that a week or so ago. I'm, I'm I would ask. Um, God, I should have done it with her. I'm asking this really honestly. I would ask for your prayers for this thing to find a good home. I would be really grateful for your prayers. Um, anyway, I can't answer it. The, the contemporary, the friend of mine at, at um, College of Notre Dame, who was a painter, his painting to me is stunning. He's dead now. And I, I know it's he sold paintings. I mean, he used to be in South America and came here and, and we were good friends in California. He's got a collection of paintings that to me is so contemporary and every one of them is biblical. And they're not literal they're not literal representations, literalist, you know. They're I mean you can't look at them. we've got one in our home. When you guys come to our house, ask. It's just on the stairway. It's of Moses with the snake. Um, but I don't know. You know, I don't know who they are. I know we desperately, I believe we desperately need them um, in our age, but. Okay, quick, quick review. Four, this is just a review of a review uh, last week. Four truths that came out of our work on uh, Milton and Dante that I would like nobody to lose 
hold of. One is that corruptions in a church can never be a reason, a justification for changing its dogmas. Christ founded the church. He's at the center of it. You, you, you know, if you didn't before, you certainly know it in our work together. The church has always had to face heresies. Always. Schismatic efforts. Things about essential things, first things. Christ, the nature of the church, the sacraments, things like that. The church has always had to fight off those things to hold on to its center. Uh, the church has always been corrupt. Peter was. I mean, Peter betrayed Christ. So, uh, and, and Christ knew that. My own, I think I've given you my reading on that. I, I, I think Christ already knew Peter was going to betray him when he said, on this rock I will build my church. You know, that when he says, who do people say I am? That we've already gone over that. Um, he already knew Peter was going to betray him um, when he gave him that authority. On this rock I will build my church. In my own mind, I mean, if anybody has something other presented, but my own reading on that, my own thinking on understanding of it is, Christ knew that Peter would not be the leader of the church that he wanted him to be unless he knew himself. And um, he knew he was going to fail. He knew he was going to betray him. He, we, that makes he, Christ makes that clear himself. It was absolutely crucial that Peter was going to be the leader of the church, and that's the man you see stand up and Acts, because when the Peter that we see in Acts is a different man, absolutely different. Um, Christ knew that if Peter were going to be that person, he would have to know himself, and there's no way Peter could not have after betraying Christ. So, um, so a fundamental principle to take away from the work we've done. No corruptions can ever be a justification for changing the dogmas of the church. The constant efforts of reform have come from within the church. All the reform movements, um, we went over them when we did Dante, I mean we touched on them because we had to go through them. But there's a difference between reform movements that come from within the church and schismatic reform movements. Movements that change the nature of the church, or its, or its dogmas. There's a fundamental difference between the Protestant Catholic mind that we saw in Milton and Dante. Um, um, the Protestant's much more inclined to be darker, even Manichaean, because he starts with a belief that nature is corrupted, that the effects of the fall were complete. We've gone over that. So Milton's treatment of the, of the heroic theme is much darker than Dante's. He presents Satan as this hero only to debunk him, but he makes it clear that all previous heroes were bad. That's Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, um, all of whom I love myself. I just think they're wonderful, wonderful. And all the ancient gods were demons. Athena, Hera, I mean, you name them, they were all demonic. So... Milton's view of nature is far darker than Dante's, and it's not that Dante is cheery-eyed or idealistic. You can't read hell without realizing he has a really good grasp of <coughs> demonic things. But his sense of the goodness, the Purgatorio and Paradiso, is much greater. I mean, that's two-thirds of the story. So even if, even if we experience hell and evil firsthand, we also are able to experience the answer to it and finally the forgiveness of it, blessedness and beatitude in Paradiso.
Um, I've said before that the um, purity of spirit, which is what Christ calls us to, cannot be racial, can't be Greek-Russian, it can't be national, can't be Anglican, Episcopal, it has to be Catholic. We're all children of God. We're all sons and daughters. We can belong to different nations, different countries, but that should not keep that. That should not divide us. Our faith, if anything, sh- should make us love one another in spite of whatever our differences are—racial, sexual, ethnic—doesn't matter. And um, the last thing was um, the notion of infallibility. If you take away infallibility, if you take away the authority that Christ has in the church and that the church represents, you have no way of answering all the things that are going to attack it. What you'd see are the the undermines, the the taking away of the dogmas of the church. I mean, all that we've been reading and everything we've done. I, and actually, I'm going to come to that next week when we do Hopkins and John Henry Newman because that was not a small thing for them, both of, both of whom were Anglican. Um, so just keep those in mind. I mean, that, those are four things, it seems to me, that are really important to come out of our work on Milton and Dante. I didn't go into that thinking it, but coming out of it, um, it seems to me those are four important things to take away. Um, we talked about the background of Boethius last time. I, I don't want to go back into it, but just um, in, in very sketchy outline, remember that Boethius is born born one year after the sack of the last sack of Rome. I think it was 477. He's born one year after that sack. In 330, the center of the empire had already moved east to Constantinople. Or what was uh, Byzantium then, and renamed Constantinople. Um, so it became the seat of power you know, just a hundred years before that. Um, so Boethius is, is born into an age um, in which there's a real shift in power. Constantinople is Greek. The culture there is Greek. Rome is Latin. Um, the the, the um, weight of power had shifted um, to the east. Um, there were serious tensions between Rome and um, Constantinople, and so many of the heresies were coming out of the East. Arianism is one, and Boethius is living at a time when the Arian influence is still still strong. Um, Theodoric, the king, was I think Arian. So many of the people yeah, were at that time, huh? A lot of the emperors in, in Rome were Arian. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, and Boethius, I mean, you can tell he was a well-educated man. He loved Plato. He loved Aristotle. In his bones, he wanted to do translations of them when he was um, um, put in jail. But there are these conflicts that are not just political, they're also dogmatic. There are real differences concerning dogmas in the church. Boethius was a man devoted to virtue, he, gave, he really believed it deeply, gave himself to a Socratic kind of life. He, he practiced virtue. He raised his sons that way. When he, when he, whenever he dealt with things in the Senate, he tried to be virtuous. That caused a lot of problems. A lot of people hated him because he was virtuous. He challenged their beliefs. Um, just the way Socrates did. When Socrates raised questions that made people aware of their ignorance, 
They didn't like him anymore. And you know what happened, they killed him. Same thing happens with Boethius. One of the men who was um, plotting against Theodoric, the king in Italy, was exiled. And when he went in exile, he accused Boethius of being involved in the conspiracy when he wasn't. So Boethius was falsely imprisoned, and you know that he'll be executed. And we talked about that in the opening chapters, that he said, everything I did was for the good. He didn't care what people thought, and yet he's whining. Um, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the confrontations Lady Philosophy brings to him. Stop your whining. Um, if you did it for all this good, you shouldn't be saying anything right now. You know, people are, most especially if people are talking against you. But at the center of the um, consolation is this idea that um, Boethius has lost his mind. This is where we were last week. He had amnesia, from, from which we get anamnesis. He's lost his mind. He has to find it again. She says that the reason he's whining, complaining as bitterly as he does is because he's lost his, he's lost, he's really lost his mind, his memory. But it's important for him to regain what he lost. He has to recover his sense of his beginnings and his ends because the beginnings and ends are the same. His beginnings are God, his end is God. So her whole effort is to help him recover a sense of his nature because he's lost it. So one of the most important things themes set out in the beginning is this theme of having lost one's way and how important it is to recover it. I'm assuming that sounds familiar right now because when we did the purgatorial, remember the whole struggle of purgatorial was to recover what one had lost. This original tie with God and with each other. When Adam and Eve were in the garden unfallen, there was no subject-object. It wasn't he, I, you, it was some kind of beholding. There would not, there would be no tendency to objectify another. There would have been an immediate beholding one with. That, would, that was the condition. One of the effects of the fall was to estrange couples. Once we turn away from God, we, we turn away from each other. The great struggle in our lives is to recover that union with others. We were made in God's image, God's Trinitarian, we were made to love and be loved, not be alone. The God of Allah, the God of the Jews, is isolated. Remember, we, we talked about this when we did Milton. Milton's God is isolated. He goes to Adam and says, why are you struggling about it? I'm isolated. We don't have a sense of a Trinitarian God, even in Milton. There's something Aryan in Milton. There's an, an Aryan aspect in Milton. Um... Our God is a Trinitarian God. If we were made in his image, we were meant to love and be loved, to know and to be known. To enter into a marriage is to risk dealing with all of that because there's a lot inside of us that's disordered. To know and to know and be known means so much of the awful stuff has to come out. It's one of the difficulties of marriage life. Married life. I know we all know that. So, Boethius will not get healthy until he goes back, until he recovers what he's lost. Okay? And um, they make it clear, she makes it clear, the two of them come to some clarity on it, that the ultimate end of man is to be happy. 
that he won't he won't be healed from this amnesia, this state of amnesia that he's in, until he recalls his nature, what his ends and his beginnings are, and the nature of happiness. And they explore all the things that ordinarily people treat as the, the cause of happiness. You remember um, wealth, fame, office, and power were the ones we looked at last time. But she included others, pleasure. St. Thomas takes those on. Those are the things that most people pursue. The trouble with every one of them, she makes clear, is that wealth, fame, office, power, pleasure, um, I'm missing one, um, are all ephemeral. If we put, if we vest ourselves in any one of those things as the source of our happiness, we will be crushed because every one of those things is imperishable. Christ said, don't lay your treasures up. We're not supposed to do that. Um, if, we get, if we get too attached to things here, we turn away from him. Um, one of the themes we saw in Dante was contemptus Monday, Monday. Hate the world, Christ said, hate the world. Um, if, if we don't distance, if we don't detach ourselves from those, we're setting ourselves up for disappointments and whining and crying and grieving and blaming and everything that Boethius does. So that's where we were. And the conclusion they came to was if happiness was man's ultimate end, happiness had to rest on something that was not perishable. It had to rest on something that was inherently good because only, only in possessing the good and having our desires fulfilled would we be happy. So whatever that good was, um, it could not be perishable. It had, it had to be inherently good. And it had to be um, sufficient to itself. Couldn't die out. Um, so she asked, is wealth inherently valuable? No, it's not. It's not. And, and she takes each, we went through them. You remember fame is such a um, illusory thing. Um, we know sooner we get it and lose it because it depends on other people for us to have it. And she had that wonderful image, if you look at fame from the perspective of the world, how ridiculous it is, because fame is this little thing when the world is this you know, much larger thing. And moreover, fame needs something different in each culture. Some people honor one thing, and a, you know, other cultures honor another. So long as honor is conferred by us, by others, it's not something inherent to be good for us. So there was only one thing that would ultimately be sufficient to itself that wasn't perishable, that was eternal, whose good was in itself, that was God. So until man turned his loves towards him, he would be setting himself up for disappointment. That is, he'd make himself subject to fortune, getting things, losing them, getting them, losing them. That's where we were, okay? One last thing. These two words were crucial last week because remember, she said the most important for you, the most important thing for you is to recover what you've lost. Anamnesis. It's the word that Christ used. Do this in in remembrance of me. Those are his words. That's the Greek. Um, Anna, back. Anamnesis. Remember, memosine, memory. To recall back to recover what was lost. 
So it's important that he recover what was lost, that he learn to see what he once knew. Very Platonic, we've gone over this, Plato believed in reincarnation. He believed that the real problem facing man was knowing something, and, and knowing for him meant recalling what he'd lost, that all of us had had this experience of God, the forms, because our souls are immortal, that um, the whole struggle to get out of the cave was to recall them, to, to recollect. He believed that knowledge was recollection. Now there's an inherent problem in this, I don't want to go there, but I want to throw it out. One of the problems with Plato is that he believed if you only knew something, because everybody thought they did, if you only really knew them, you'd be good. So his explanation of, for depravity was a lack of knowledge and a, and a, a lack of memory. Um, amnesia. The problem with that is that we know that um, knowing something doesn't make our wills good. Lucifer had the most brilliant intellect of any created thing and chose to turn. St. Paul says, that which I, that which I would I don't, um, that which I, how many, does that go that? That which I would not, I do, and then he but it turns itself, and that what I would, I can't, or you know, what he's acknowledging is that very often we know something right or something's wrong, but it's not enough to know it. You can know it's wrong to steal. When I was young, when I was young, I knew it was. I remember stealing a knife in a store. I remember. We know it's wrong. We still do it. We commit sins all the time. Knowing, I mean. We have a, the, the great struggle for us in our belief. It's not, this is not Freud. Freud was agnostic, you know, to uncover this knowledge. The great struggle for us is correcting our wills. That's why we undergo all the disciplines in our church to help correct our will. So there are these two notions: anamnesis to recover what was once known. Plato believed that, that we, um, because he believed in reincarnation that we'd all had this experience of the eternal forms and the importance of the Socratic dialogue, the Socratic method is to help get us past our pride to learn to see them again because once we saw them we would be good. So but we, Lady Flossie is trying to help him recover what he wants to She's going through this sort of catechism. And, and Afra remembers back Foda um, Bear Christopher, Christopheros, Christ bearer, is to bear back, to carry back. Um, um, she's trying to help him go back to recover these things that he had lost. Um, now that's where we were. Um, now I'd like to go forward, but let me, let me stop. Two, two things before we, I, I want to, before I just wait for a minute and give you guys a chance for questions. If you have, two things. I think I mentioned this last time. One of the one of the prisoners in the Monday evening group came out of the room as I was leaving to go get the box of books, and he said, 10 feet behind me, easy read, Bob. Easier. 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 Easier read, Bob. Um, and I turned around, and I, I said, I'm so glad that he said it, because I said, yeah, it is. You know it's far more direct. When we do a work of literature, we have to interpret it. Mm -hmm. When we're doing a work like this, there's, there's 
less interpreting, although I want to I want to be careful in that because I believe we still have work to do. Except for the last chapter. But it's yeah. But it's more openly discursive. It's it's statements of ideas. We're not. It's a it's a drama going on. But you know, in a work of literature, we're back in the real world, and we have to put this form together. There's an argument going on at a level of ideas, so it's much easier to grasp. It seems. Okay, I want to say this. So on the surface, you guys know me. You're not going to get away with anything here. On the surface, it's an easier seems to be an easier read. Okay. I don't believe it is at all. On the surface, it is. This is one of the most tightly knit, knitted arguments I've ever read in all my readings in philosophy. If you lose a stage in this argument, if you lose any link, it's going to be much harder for you to get to the end of it. It's so tightly knit. So even though it's statements on the surface, I believe it's a very tough argument to follow. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons Boethius is using the prosing meter the alternating prose and poetry. And she makes this clear late. She said, what we've just gone through is too heavy for your mind. <laughs> we need to turn to poetry. <laughs> you know, I hope you're the self-humor here because I've been laughing at it since we did this. That Remember her response to his problem was, you're grieving and you're whining when you shouldn't. Stop reading so much literature. <laughs> but she it, ran off the muse. Huh? But she ran off the muse. I in the know. Beginning. Those sluts. Yes. <laughs> um, Isn't there something wrong there? <laughs> or is it just me? <laughs> no. Anyway, um, so on the surface, it seems simple. But it's also important for us to acknowledge that it is so tightly knit that. Our mind, our mind is being asked to work harder line by line by line by line than it is in a work of poetry. Because it's constantly asking us to think. Consciously think. Not, um, and, and I hope this is true. I mean, remember this. In a symphony, one of the reasons for the uh, overture is to quiet the critical mind. It's to quiet that mind so when the music starts, you enter into it. Now, how many of you enter into a symphony? Take a Bach piece. A, 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 what's the two-piece thing called? I can't even remember now. The um, Enter into a Bach piece. How many of us hear a Bach piece thinking the whole time? It doesn't happen. We're letting the music work on our effective that effective part of our souls, the mind's quieted. Remember that one aspect of poetry is musical. It's, it's trying to arouse, work on that effective part of us while it's asking our mind to work. So this is, this is a tough read because it's asking almost every moment for us to be thinking about something, but it alternates with these poems because it, it allows the mind to rest. Um, because at each point we're going to have to go higher and higher and higher. We're making a climb here in our mind. Um, the second thing is, I think, to, to try to put the whole thing together now looking forward because we're, I want to cover the last part of the book as directly as I can right here. If we look at the whole work, this is what I'm going to say its, it's central theme is. The central theme let me put it in terms of an action, because you know that's the word that I've been using to describe poetry. There's an action from a beginning to an end. An action is taking place. Remember, 
Aristotle, the plot is an imitation of action. The plot are the episodes, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But those events are an imitation of an action, an underlying movement of spirit. Some change is taking place in the So when we talk about a work of literature, we, we've got to look at the plot in order to get to that action. What's at the center of that action should be its central intuition, its central theme, if you want to call it that. The central intuition, what's at the heart, the still point, still point of the consolation is this. It's lady philosophy wanting to take Boethius home. She says that explicitly. It's to take him home. There's that theme again, nostos. What's your end and your beginning? In my beginning is my end. She wants to help him go home. Everything she's doing is preparing him for his death, his execution, so that he can go home. Here's what's interesting, another interesting thing along that line. Remember I said this, when the book begins, on an allegorical level, on a literal level, Lady Philosophy comes to him. But who is this? Tall as the sky, feet on the ground, familiar. I suggested that allegorically, she's the light of truth. And I made the point that, to remind everybody, at every moment in our lives when things are overwhelming us, when things simply seem out of control, we're made in the, Christ is at the center of this um, naturality, Christiani, animus. The, the natural Christian soul, every one of us is, has the image of Christ in us. Whenever things are overwhelming, that light comes to us. It's always there. The problem is, do we stop our whining, get rid of the noises to hear? So literally, Lady Philosophy's coming. Allegorically, we can say it's light coming to him at that moment when he's losing it. And he needs to recover himself at just at that point. Stop blaming other people. In fact, we looked at this. Remember, she reached that point. She said, you're blaming all these other people for your problems. You're the problem. Remember? you got to answer your... Here's Plato. Mind your own business. You should be answering yourself right now. So the overarching theme, the intuition at its center, is light, this logos, philosophy, this love of wisdom, this light, taking him home. Stage by stage, help him to recover himself, to get ready to face his end. That's the theme of the constellation. So it's a pretty extraordinary work. Let me stop for a moment, and then we'll pick up the last two chapters. I'll try to do this quickly. Any any questions about what Boethius um, is doing? I have a question. I don't know if I should bring it up right now. You know, did I understand you correctly to say that in the Old Testament there wasn't reference to the Trinity? No. Today? Or any time? Say it again. You were talking about the Trinity, and we have the Trinity in the New Testament. I must have I don't remember this morning? Well, I thought when the last class I was at, and then I thought you made reference. I can't remember. Honestly, I don't remember. Okay, but you weren't saying that there was no Trinity in the Old Testament, right? A reference to I don't remember making a claim like that. Okay. Because I, I can't remember what you said or how you said it, but I, I but 
at the time it, it clicked in my head. I thought, well, I need to ask. Ask. I don't remember. I wish ever I could remember exactly what you said. Yeah. Um, I can't remember ever saying that. That I, I mean, I'd have to think about that right now. It's not something that comes immediately to mind. I haven't thought about that. Well, I think I, mis I obviously misunderstood or mis uh, what you what you were your point. So. Any other any questions, Francis? Do you have a question? Yes, you do. No. No. <laughs> not. No, I was just thinking about what she said, and I thought. <laughs> nothing about nothing about light energy coming from <laughs> lady philosophy. I think what Kathy was talking about was you said something about the Jews and the, and the uh, Muslims. Uh, they have a single God, basically. Uh, yeah, I have said that. Yeah. Right. And, you know, whereas uh, right. Right. Okay. And what I did is, since you mentioned Jews and Muslims and Jews, I was saying, okay, the Jews had the Old Testament. They didn't acknowledge a Trinitarian God. Is that power? Part of the problem, I mean, this is really interesting. I don't, I don't want to go here right now. Thanks, Don, for yeah, helping out with so that. Yeah. One of the problems, I mean, imagine the difficulty here. The Jews are waiting for Messiah. Christ comes and he says he's God. So that ultimately means, this. by the way, this was what led to one of the heresies in the church. Modalism. One of the heresies was that there's only one God. There's only one God. That's Old Testament. That was the belief. That the Christ figure is God in another mode. So the, er, er, think about that. The Arians are, he's a man. The modalist is he's God in another, I mean, there you are with heresies, you know, con confused about the nature of Christ. That was one of the struggles the church went through. But think about how difficult this must have been for the Jewish people. Here's a guy who's saying, in fact, they, they thought he blasphemed when you said you could forgive the sins, only God can do that. Or he said, this, um, the, you, in, in me you see the Father. Either he was God coming down, or it meant there were two persons in the Godhead. And then Christ started talking about a spirit. Which meant there were three. What did the, what did the Muslims say? There's only one God. These Christians are, are, are acting, how did they put it in the, I've read it, I don't remember words, but these Christians are acting as if God has company. You know, that there's multiple gods. I mean, that, that was a blasphemy to the Muslim, or, you know, the Muslims who believed that God was solitary. So Christ <laughs> throws this huge curve, this loop, into people's thinking. Either he was nuts, or they had to rethink the nature of Godhead. Okay. And that's why we had all the confusions for the first century of the church. Um, and why we continue to have systematic things happening. You know, um, because people can make God... Lots of things. This is what I, I mean, it's just, we use reason so badly, so often. It was one of the points when we were doing Dante, ladies who have the intelligence of love, the way, the way we use reason motivated in love is a very different way of using reason when it's not. And we know the harm that reason can do. We see it every day.
it's part of our lives every day that we have to work to correct ourselves and what we do with our minds. Okay, let's. Um, I, let's. I want to go through um, I, just briefly, if I can, some of the um, some of the passages because I want to try to let the book speak as much for itself as I can. Turn to page the end of three. And through three, Lady Philosophy is um, um, committed to showing that there is one being, a God, who created the universe, that that God was good and omnipotent and um, omniscient, and that nobody could really go against him. On page 82 and 83, she gives this poem or Boethius gives this poem, with Orpheus at the center. And then it ends on page 84. Um, Alas, close to the bounds of night, Orpheus backward turns his sight and looking lost her twice to fate. Notice the word fate there. You all remember the Orpheus myth? Eurydice was his beloved. She died and was taken to the underworld and he was given permission to go into the underworld to get her. Orpheus was the poet. He used his lyre to awaken love in people, and even in trees, in inanimate things. It showed that there's this motion of love that can actually tame nature. That's very real to me. When I watched Suzanne plant or work in the garden, it's like a song. Working with nature, she loves plants. And if you've been over to our house, you know there's plants all over the house. Sometimes I tell her, take some away. <laughs> she loves plants. You know, they're all over the house. Um, it's, it's a way of, of harmonizing nature. She brings a beauty to it. There is, it's always there in our house. Orpheus was a singer, a poet. And he brought that kind of harmony to what he did with everything in nature. Human beings, nature itself. He's given permission to go get her on the condition that he not look back. Now, book three ends with this image of Orpheus being asked not to look back, but what does he do as he approaches the cave entrance? He looks back. You all know that myth. Why is that important here? Why does Boethius end book three? It's the middle point before we go into four and five. Why does he end it with that image of Orpheus? Remember um, 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 Lot and his wife? Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Dante when he started Purgatory? What the angel said to him? Don't look back. Don't look back. Why is Boethius doing this here? So he doesn't lose his progress? He doesn't yeah. revert back? Right, right. Because she's just helped clarify what the nature of the good is. It is not riches, fame, reputation, what other people think, office, power, None of those is intrinsically good to the person, right? Fame depends on other people. If they give it to you, they can take it away. Boethius was a very famous, reputable man. What happened in the Senate? Gone. Everything that he, he fought for in a spirit of virtue is taken from him. If he was true to his word, he'd have no complaints. Because if he was attempting to do good, he would have done it for the good of self, no matter what happened, like Socrates, like Christ. 
but the but the work opens with him whining, crying, and blaming. And so I think this is a, a, a turning point. She makes it clear there's a danger for him that at this point he not look back to go back to those things that led to the whining, the crying, the complaining, the blaming. Okay. Um, <clears throat> 85, the greatest cause of my sadness is really this, the fact that, in, so, yes, he's saying, I accept all that you, but, he's <laughs> question. Um, this fact that in spite of a good helmsman to guide the world, this God, evil can still exist and even pass unpunished. This fact alone you must surely think considerable wonder, but there's something even more bewildering. When wickedness rules and flourishes, not only does virtue go unrewarded, it's even trodden underfoot by the wicked and punished in place of crime. That this can happen in the realm of an omniscient and impotent God who wills only good is beyond perplexity. By the way, I want to remind everybody because I, I, I've been drawing com, um, parallels between this story and the Job story. You all know that Job is forced to give up everything. He loses everything. And, and his friends accuse him of sin. It's that Old Testament legal. If there's something wrong, you had you had to do something wrong yourself. Very legalistic, very Old Testament law. I, what I don't want anybody to forget here. Um, it, it's not to the point, but it's 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 worth remembering if we're making comparisons with Job. The Job story starts with this dialogue between God and Satan. If you read the story, you know it's an exchange between the God and Yahweh and. Satan and Yahweh gives Satan permission to tempt him because his belief is it will only make test Job's strength his faith in God so everything that everything that happens is Satan working in the world this evil in the Job story um, Boethius is approaching that question now because if he says if this good God that we've established is the ruler of the world, the creator of it, where else did all this goodness come from? How could he allow evil? How could it go reward it if he's good? So she she has to take up this question of good and evil. Um, top of eighty eight. First, then that the good are always getting st are strong and the wicked always bereft of all power. These are facts you'll be able to see, the one being proved by the other. For since good and evil are opposites, the weakness of evil is shown by establishing the strength of good and vice versa. So what she's making clear is, it, only, the, only something that's complete in itself can be strong. It's God. Because we've already established that anything that's less than that will be weakened. It's perishable. It can be lost. Um, so if, if God is complete goodness, he's complete power, he's, omnis he's omnipotent, complete power, evil has to be its opposite, its privation. Okay? Now, if, if that isn't obvious, let me just make an argument because I don't want to assume anything. You know that I think it's Zoroasterism believes that good and evil are, this is an Eastern philosophy, good and evil are co-eternal. Um, there's an aspect of that philosophy that looks at, at spirit as good and body as evil, coternal in this fight. Um, we knew that, we've known that as Manichaeism. It's, a, it's an aspect always, I, there's a lot about the modern world that's Manichaean. 
I think there's a Manichaean element to Protestantism. Nature is depraved. It's all evil. That's a dark carrying forward of a Manichaean aspect into our world. She's saying that um, good can only be complete and powerful. Evil, if it's anything, has to be a privation. That's been an understanding in the church forever. That's why I have trouble with Milton, with the angels, because once you separate yourself from God, you begin to lose your strength. Whatever your form was begins to get crippled. It's no longer the radiant beauty to take the angels that it once was. So she's saying one of the differences between a good and evil person is a good person who practices virtue is always stronger. An evil person is weaker for one reason. He, can, he cannot do good. Everything he does is a deception, an illusion of going through the motions. To, to put this even more, more dramatically, if it isn't clear, if God is complete in himself, there's nothing outside of him. He is being itself. There is no evil out there. It's evil's a privation. God will always win. Evil can never do anything but be defeated. It will defeat itself. Take a look at every... Milton, what happens to Satan? Take a look at a Shakespeare play. Nobody in Shakespeare, no evil character ever comes to any other end except his own destruction or her own destruction. Because evil by its very nature will undo itself. It pretends to see when it doesn't. pretends to have power. It can't do good. So in everything it's doing, it's bringing about its own ruin. So this is not a small thing because she's saying, be sure to practice the good. Do everything you can to be virtuous. Um, 94. I actually look at 93. She's reinforcing the argument she met earlier. If every one of us wants to be happy, and we can only be happy by doing the good, even when it's hard to do, we keep practicing it. And the ultimate source of all goodness is divine, then we will never know complete happiness until something in us is divine. 93. But we agree that those who attain happiness are divine. The reward of the good, then, reward that can never be decreased, that no one's power can diminish and no one's wickedness darken, is to become God's. This is sort of stunning. What do we do? I've been, we've been talking about this for the beginning. What do we do when we take the Eucharist? We're taking God in us. We have these sins in us that um, I don't believe we can change on our own. We just take, If our original sin is against God, we can't answer that sin without his help. And if that is our original sin and it affects us, it'll affect our relationships with each other. It's only by going back to him, by getting strength from him, we will find strength to answer those sins, to make us right with him and make us right with others. Till that time comes, we're in amnesia. We've lost our way. So she's just reinforcing the point here that for us to be completely happy, to participate in the source of our being, um, is to take something of that in us, something divine. That word that I've been used, remember theosis, the gradual transformation into, into God. Paul used the word sons by adoption, to, that we become sons of God, um, share in Christ's nature with him. Um, 101, 
So she's made it clear that the problem right now is in the mind. Remember from the beginning she said, you've lost your mind, you're in amnesia. You've got to learn to see better because you're, what's wrong with you is you're seeing wrong, right? Blaming people when you shouldn't, accusing them, feeling sorry for yourself, just taking him back to his beginning. The problem in he, the mind, and she says, if that's true, then the last thing you should do is hate evil people because they're only doing evil. This is a little bit, this is very platonic. They're only doing that because they don't know better. There's a problem here, but 102. This is why among wise men there's no place at all left for hatred. For no one except the greatest of fools would hate good men. There's no reason at all for hating the bad, for just as weakness is a disease in the body, so wickedness is a disease of the mind. What does God ask us to do in our response to evil people? Love them. Love them. He, he, he asks us to hate the sin. But he asks us to love enemies. Now, I'm assuming everybody knows how hard that is because that, that means you just can't leave a person in sin. We're asked to love them. To love them means helping them out of sin. Sometimes that isn't easy. I'm assuming all of us know that. Um, so at this point, 103, he realizes that he's, she's answered so many of these questions, but all of these questions are taking her to, to, to a deeper level of meaning. Remember, they're climbing this, this mountain, it's purgatory. They're climbing higher and higher. It's getting harder and harder. So she, she's, he says, she says, you can't go farther without looking at the hidden causes of things. Um, on page... Um, Sorry. Um, on page 103 in the, in the poem. The causes in this case are clear to view, but hidden cause confounds the human heart, perplexed by things that rarely come to pass, for unexpected things the people dread, and let the clouds of ignorance give way, and these events will no more wondrous seem. So it's so, I said, but since it's part of your task to unravel the causes of matter that lie hidden and to unfold reasons veiled in the darkness, since I'm very much disturbed by this strange phenomenon, I beg you to tell me your teaching on this point. Does man have free will? Um, how can God allow evil? At the bottom of 103, the only way to check them is with a really lively intellectual fire, the Hydra says, because no sooner do we tackle one problem than another one crops up. Unless we go to the principles, the causes of all things, we will never succeed in getting rid of these hydra heads, these constant problems that assail us. The only way to check us is the really lively intellectual fire. The usual subjects of inquiry concern the oneness of providence, its unity, the course of fate, and the haphazard nature of random events of chance, divine knowledge, predestination, freedom of the will. These are the principal causes of things. We will, If she's taking him back, she'll not get him home until he sees these. Remember I asked this question when we were doing um, the Paradiso, why doesn't Christ come to greet Dante? If Christ is the cause of things, 
he's got to learn the nature of everything in creation. So everything that's happening in the Paradiso is to reveal how intelligible everything, there is meaning in everything. And it's interesting that during that journey, he's going back to origins. And at each step of the way, he's learning something about the nature of things. Here's Boethius. Um, so, on page um, um, 104, she makes a distinction between what she calls fate and providence. Bottom of 104. So this unfolding of plan in time when brought under a unified whole in the foresight of God's mind is providence. And the same unified whole when dissolved and unfolded in the course of time is fate. So from God's perspective, in the unity of his knowledge, he saves things. Remember, there's no past and future. There's only an eternal is present. So he sees things in it, their simplicity. In time when things are moving and changing, we're in a contingent world, um, the nature of that he calls fate, to make a distinction between two conditions. He says 105, um, the simple and unchanging plan of events is providence, and fate is the ever-changing web, the disposition in and through time of all the events which God has planned in his simplicity. God is simple. We're fractured, multiplied. We live in multiplicity. Go down a few lines. The inmost, um, she describes it um, in terms of a circle. The inmost one comes closest to the simplicity of the center while forming itself a kind of center for those set outside to revolve around. The circle further out rotates through a wider orbit and the greater its distance from the indivisible center point, the greater the space it spreads through. Anything that joins itself to the middle circle is brought close to simplicity and no longer spreads out widely. In the same way, whatever moves any distance from the primary intelligence becomes enmeshed in ever stronger chains of fate, and everything is freer from fate the closer it seeks the center of things. If it cleaves to the steadfast mind of God, it's free from movement and so escapes the necessity imposed by fate. The relationship between the ever-changing course of fate and the stable simplicity of providence is like that between reasoning and understanding, between that which is coming into being and that which is, between time and eternity or between the moving circle and the still point in the middle. To try to help with this, I think the image is clear, right? Still point, we've seen it, Nellie, we've been dealing Dante. But she also mentions it, makes the, uh, relates it to reason and understanding. Stop and think about this just for a second. Reasoning is the mind working step by step. This, 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 then. If this, 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 then, right? And we come to a conclusion. Understanding means you've grasped it all. Ratio, the, the term the medievals would use, reason is you reason step by step. It's natural to us because we live in time. We have a body. We're not a angels. Angels see by um, intellectus. Humans by ratio. They just see holes. They don't have bodies. Right? So, but stop and think about it. If you're reasoning from a point to a point to a conclusion, right? and you come to a conclusion, and you know it's certain, because it can give a certainty, right? Um, then it was always there to begin with, even if we didn't see it. Otherwise, how can we get to it? How can we arrive at a point of understanding? 
when you're teaching a child to do math, I mean, you'll go through step by step and get to a conclusion, right? He'll have understanding, but it was always there at the beginning, even if he didn't see it. That's true for everything in the world, and it's not so. It's not just true for for reasoning. It's true for our love, beginning and end. Remember Eliot's poem. Um, I should have brought it. Desire is not the end of things. God doesn't desire anything. God's complete. He just loves. We desire. It's a part of moving towards something. What are we moving toward? Hopefully we're moving towards a love that's complete in itself to answer all of our desires. So the image that she's giving us is the distinguishing between the motion and confusion on the circumference, the, the farther you get away from the center, and the stillness or the understanding, the wholeness that's there at the center. Okay. Um, isn't, isn't each step of that process intellect? As you go through that reasoning process, each step along the way where you, you draw a conclusion that allows you to reason further, doesn't that become part of the intellect? No, it isn't because the, the understanding is the whole. No, I, I get that. So like you, you go from A to Z. I know. And what once you, you get from A to Z, you've, you've achieved understanding. But to get from A to B, and then from B to C, there has to be an establishment of something which but I it's think not you call intellect. Let me, let me, let me, I don't know if this will help, Fred, but um, Descartes said, um, the whole is the sum of the parts. Right. So for him, the whole would be the sum. Aristotle says, and Aristotle's got a metaphysics that Descartes doesn't have. Aristotle would say, the whole is um, prior to and greater than the sum of the parts. And by hold off on this if you can, because we're going to get to something yeah, when he deals with perpetuities. But but I just want to make that distinction. Aristotle says the whole is prior to and greater than the sum of the parts. And he uses this example in the opening chapters of the politics. He said, um, the polis is the whole. No, wait, he said, so the nature is the whole. So before a man is, and we, by the way, we're in a Cartesian world. We're not in an Aristotelian world. He said, when a child's born, the whole is already implied in that child. He has a nature that he comes into. So for him, it's prior to and greater than the sum of the parts because the sum of the parts will constitute his learning, his growing, part by part by part, you know. Aristotle says, and Dante Aquinas would all agree, that whole, the beginning and the end, is already there. It's greater than the sum of the parts. Descartes is a, a mechanist. It's a mechanistic theory of, you know, the parts are replaceable. So the whole is nothing more than the sum. For Aristotle and Plato, and I hope you're seeing this because this is a, this is a, a terribly difficult metaphysical problem. Um, Aristotle says the nature is already there. So when a child's born, he's born in it. We in the modern world think we have no nature. We can make ourselves whatever we want, part by part. It's very mechanistic. So, um, so intellectus, an angel could grasp the whole. As humans, we can't. Although occasionally, I think most of us had those moments where we'll be in a shower. I mean, they come to me in the shower. Where something will be going... Very often when your mind is relaxed, 
when you're not pressing on something, when your mind isn't pressing because you're in that ratio mode, suddenly something will happen and you go, holy cow, I see. And in that instant, it's like an instant, and that instant will cover a million parts even though you couldn't pull them together. But you, but you know something hits you and it'll, it'll make sense of 20 things that didn't make sense before. And if you thought about it, it would include 2,000 things that you can't include in it. But there's a glimpse of some hole that makes you go, ah, I see. And I think that's getting close to intellectus, to what the angels. This is getting close to God, the way God sees. Right now he's trying to make a distinction to help get us there. Hold on, just so... Um, on page 111, she gets a point where she said, if God is good, and there are these different ways of seeing, and the problem with us is the way that we know, and she's made it clear, we know in the wrong way. We think we know things when we don't. We make claims all the time that we have knowledge. We learn that we were mistaken. It's part of our lives. 111. The, uh, the poem those things which stable order now protects divorced from their true source would fall apart this is the love of which all things partake the end of good their chosen goal and close no other way can they expect to last unless with love for love repaid they turn and seek again the cause that gave them birth all things had as their origins the love of God all things hopefully will return to that that's the beginning of things and the end. Here's Eliot. In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. Remember all those phrases in Eliot? Where the dance is, I can't tell you where. For to put it there is to put it in time. All those, we, we talked about all those still point images. There is no place that doesn't have a still point. None. Or things could not hold. They'd be flying off. Everything in life assumes it. Do we have the intelligence to see it? Most often not. We have to work at it. But the consequence of that, she says here, do you see what the consequence is of all that we've said? No, what is <laughs> Do you see now Boethius? Boethius going, no. All fortune is certainly good. Boethius' natural response, how can that be? I mean, here we are, step by step. By, I mean, here, Fred, step by step by step, just when you think you know it, there's still more to know. Listen. <laughs> you can almost see her wanting to throttle him. She's too patient to do that. But Listen. All fortune, whether pleasant or adverse, is meant either to reward or discipline the good or punish or correct the bad. We agree on the justice or usefulness of fortune, and so all fortune is good. She goes on to make, if God is a good God, all he can do is good. He'll take everything that's going on, no matter how evil we make it, and try to do everything he can to make it good. Will that spare people from damnation? I don't think so. But it does mean that whatever they did do, he can work to somebody's good. Which is exactly what's going on with Boethius. Because remember, he was, un he was unjustly condemned. He's in, he sh he, he's in a situation he shouldn't be in. He's going to die. What, la what is Lady Philosophy doing? bringing a good out of it. She's like an image of the way God works, this image of light that I call the, you know, the, inc the, the naturalite Christiana animus, the, the naturally Christian soul, 
that that light is at work. We saw it in C.S. Lewis's um, Two Half Faces. That light is always at work trying to help. If we would only shut up and quiet the voices, you know, the noise in our life that keeps us from hearing Him. You hear this all the time in spiritual exercises and retreats. Cut the noise out. Shut up. Listen. You know, take time for meditation, for prayer, to learn to hear. Um, on page 113, For you who are set on the path of increasing virtue have not come so far to abandon yourself to delights or language. Because what happens when you get wealthy and successful? What's the temptation? Well, to start enjoying the wealth. You want more. Rest, rest you want more. You stray from the path of the good. Or you languish and talk. Because yeah. I earned it. You know, yeah. you bask yourself in that is you get spoiled. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how, how hard will you work then to be virtuous? So she's saying, you know, you're either going to abandon yourself to delights or languish in pleasure. Um, you are engaged in a bitter but spirited struggle against fortune of every kind to avoid falling victim to her when she is adverse or being corrupted by her when she's favorable. Either you're going to whine when things get bad or you're going to bask in your success if you get good. What does she say? Hold on to the middle with an unshakable strength. There's Aristotle's meaning. Be careful of over... When things go bad, be careful that you don't give in to them. When things go good, be careful that you don't give in to them. What's your course? No matter what happens, to keep trying to be good, virtuous. That's Mary all the way up purgatory. And it's Christ and what he asks of... So, book five. Um, book 5 opens with this question so if everything's as you say that God's in control and there are no um, bad fortune had she that no all fortune events. is certainly good huh? no random events right then there's no chance if there's no chance how can there be free will if everything's already given then and this is really crucial if there is no chance there's no free will then how can man be um, rewarded for his virtue or punished for his vices? Because the whole notion of damnation or hell, I mean, or heaven, or happiness depends on doing something good and avoiding evil. So he's saying, uh, if there is no chance, all of what we've, the conclusion we come to this point, so we're we're still climbing. Here's her answer. By the way, this is a wonderful, um, this is a section of Aristotle's physics that's worth looking at. In the physics, he, he takes this from the physics. This is a paraphrase of an example of Aristotle's. Whenever something's done for some purpose and for certain reasons, something other than what was intended happens, it's called chance. Notice that she's giving a definition of what chance is, and that doesn't mean random events or just probability. For example, if somebody begins to dig the ground in order to cultivate a field and he finds this gold, it's believed to happen fortuitously, but it does not happen as a result of nothing. It has its own causes, the unforeseen and unexpected conjunction of which have clearly affected the chance event. If the cultivator of the field had not been digging, and if the depositor, the one who buried the money, had not done it, the gold would have not been found. 
So it looks like a chance event, and at a level of contingency, it is. But the point that she's making is what, what we describe chance means only is that it was not intended. Because the guy who buried the gold didn't intend for somebody to uncover it, and the guy who's tilling his field didn't do it expecting to find gold. So indirectly she's showing there's a cause for everything, but what we take to be chance is very often the conjunction of one or multiple lines of causality. Because remember, if God's in control, he, he's created, a, this is an earlier argument, he's created everything with a purpose. The one thing that seems to stand outside of that is man with his free will, and man can do a lot of evil. But either God is stupid because he has an opinion about things, he doesn't have quite a good grasp, or he really sees and knows and is trying to do things in, in ways we can't even begin to fathom because what he does is so far beyond us. But right now she's trying to show that there is free will, but we, she wants to get clear that we don't confuse it with what people call random occurrences or chance. She says there is, on page 118, there is freedom for it would be impossible for any rational nature to exist without it. So one of the differences between God and man and the rest of creation is that God and man have reason. This power to see, to know. Um, now comes the naughty question. Um, if God foresees, then does his seeing necessitate something? Because if it does, it takes away free will. So how can God foresee something unless it's already determined, it's already necessitated? That's um, So that's the... We're getting right now to the next to the highest point. Um, 125, she says, the problem is so often one of not making a distinction between the intelligibility of a thing, its knowability, and the way we know. I'll just hold on to that for a second. Bottom of 125. The cause of this mistake is that people think that the totality of their knowledge depends on the nature and capacity to be known of the objects of knowledge, but this is wrong. Everything that is known is comprehended not according to its own nature, but according to the ability to know of those who do the knowing. Let me make it clear with a brief example. She gives an example. And then she makes a distinction between sense, imagination, reason, and intelligence. But and I, I want to look at, we're getting to the theory of relativity. Is it? <laughs> Out of my league, I have no. Um, here, I want everybody to be clear. Is it clear that what's really important for us is to distinguish between the thing known and the mode of the knower? And I, I'm assuming it's. Let me take a minute. There's a, a human being or a tree. Let's take an underwater plant. An underwater plant. Let me take a tree. Let me take a tree. So, a dolphin jumps out of the water, and there's a tree. Or you can go underwater and look at an underwater plant. Um, a human being looks at the tree, and an angel looks at the tree. Do they all see the tree in the same way? No. What's the difference? Relativity. <laughs> no, seriously, everybody sees it differently according to what... But it's, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me, before you, 
if you could wait for a minute, please. I'm done. No, you're not. No, because I, I really want to, if we can go back, but I want, to, I want to get to a simple thing that's easier for all of us here before we, is that clear? Um, yeah, hold on. So let me take a tree outside, let's say a dog. So, so a dog looks at a tree and a human looks at a tree and an angel looks at a tree. Is it clear that they each see according to their own mode of knowing? That an animal would only know in its senses? Yes? So all he would see was the properties of the tree, material. Hmm? Because a man has a body like a dog, a man has a body like a dog, and he also has a mind, he can abstract from what's delivered to the senses to an idea, what we call the species or the form. So when we give a definition, the definition is um, the form of the thing, it's species. So let me, let me, I'm sorry, this is philosophy 101, but so isn't it, it should be clear to everyone, if you looked at a hundred eucalyptus trees, you could identify them and say, they're all eucalyptus. If you set them next to a hundred oak trees, you'd say they're different than the oak trees. But could you, could you articulate express the law of the eucalyptus. What made that eucalyptus what it was in its thousand manifestations and could you give the law of the oak? Plato would use the word form. We use the definition. So by form we mean the species of the thing, the form of what makes it what it is. Is that clear? Because if you can't give that law of the eucalyptus, you re in one sense you don't really understand the nature of a eucalyptus. So a dog would look at it through his senses, a human would look at it through its senses, but with his mind he could abstract from the senses to get to its species, to say it's, it's this, and it's different from oak and pine and you know palm, because your mind could grasp the form of what makes a hundred oak, oak trees oak trees instead of eucalyptus. Would the angel see it the same way? Angels don't have bodies. No, because the angel wouldn't see the, the material, the, he would see the form of a thing. Because they're all mind. Now that's hard to grasp because the whole modern world tries to give angels bodies, but they don't have them. So could an angel distinguish one eucalyptus tree from another? Of course he could. Of course he could. Why? The form is the same. No, hold on. Th because you'd see the form for both of them. The form is the same. Right. But eucalyptus tree in my yard is not the same as the eucalyptus tree in Fred and Francis's yard. They're different senses. But the form would be the same in either the one. The form, but he can't, what I'm saying is can he distinguish between Fred and Francis's and ours? Because... He doesn't he, see the material property. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Logical yeah, except I know there's a difficulty and I can't, there'd be, I mean that's the, that was one of the great problems that the medieval scholastic faced, how many angels on the pin of a needle and, you know, because you have a thousand angels, they're all, they're all intellectual, there's no body. Um, that's, I don't know, I don't know, Duck, I can't, I mean, I, I, my assumption is somewhere they'd be able to by seeing that it's a form in either case. Um, 
what they would do with time space dimensions because one's there and one's you know I don't know but each one would be distinct by its form but it would be in a different space so how they would comprehend or how they would their minds would grasp it because each one would be time specific or and space specific one here one here um, here I want to make this clear it's she goes on to say one of the most important things is this 127 the point of greatest importance wait before is that clear that the tree each one would see that tree according to its own mode of knowing and the mode of knowing would be different for each the dog would be or, or put it this way could the dog grasp the universal wait no no start so a human can look at the sensory thing the tree the properties of a tree but he could also grasp the form the form by its a nature is more universal it's not particular I mean it goes to Doc's question it's more universal can a dog grasp the universal of something so, so is the form the fact that it's a eucalyptus tree or is the form the fact that it's a specific eucalyptus tree go ahead the way I understand this, each one of us from our genome is different. Sorry? All of us are different. Right. We are all, we're all. Each humans. one of us each is Each one of us is different. different. Right. Each tree is actually different. Right. And so if, if the angel is looking, can only perceive the form, the forms are all different. Even though we're in the same species, even though it's a eucalyptus tree, because we're all humans, and we don't look anything alike because our genome is different. Well, we do look alike, or we wouldn't be, because, I mean, we're not identical, no, what but I'm, we what I'm, what I'm saying is from, from a very um, cellular level, we are different. Mm -hmm. we're, we're all humans, but the characteristics that you have and everyone in this room has are different, mm -hmm. and so, I would think that an angel would just would be able to perceive that, would know that, because it's it's a it's. I mean, you can't necessarily. It's not that I'm not saying that it looks stiff that we look different, but from a very basic level, we are different. Let me try to explain that a little bit, if I can be a little bit, a little bit. Or thorough in the way that Boethius would have understood this in the scholastics. Um, the notion form for us as humans doesn't have a meaning. We can understand the notion of a form apart from something. We, we can't in understanding things themselves because no thing has any existence apart from its form. What individualizes a thing is, is its material properties. Um, but it's only in coming to hold on just to, because so let me so if you take a template a form and reproduce buttons or sweaters hmm, They all have the same form What distinguishes one button from another? It's the material from the tree It's the material properties that this the individualizing properties comes from matter so it's when form and matter meet that we we become wait wait we become who we are as humans 
So even though you say we're all different, we are, except we're all humans. We share a human nature. That's our form. But we're individualized by our material property. We went through this with Dante when um, Fred said, how does he know when they don't have their bodies? Remember, we went, that, that was implying all of this. Um, the form is individualized by our property, so you're exactly right. It's, I mean, you're physically different from, so am I. That's what individualizes us. It's the form that, um, the thing that we have in common. So, what, so when we talk about our human nature, so I can talk about you as an individual, but I also know that all of us share a humanity, that that's what we have in common. I can even go so far as to say, if we ever get to a point where we make our distinct differences more important than what we share, we're in danger. We're supposed to remember that we have something in common, to pull together, to love, you know. So for us, um, form and matter cannot be separated in an individual thing at all. A thing couldn't be a thing without its form. So when you look at a form, um, I mean, Doc's question is a really good one. I, my, my only answer to it, that an angel, because he's not just looking at a pine tree in one yard and a pine tree in another, he sees a whole of things that we don't. So he'd know that the form of that tree there and the form of the tree, but he, he's seen it, but he knows the form. He knows that that's what, because that's what he sees. I don't want to, this is too tough to go in here. I, I just want to put it out as a basic way. The, there is nothing, with, there's nothing in, nothing in existence that doesn't have form. The source of all of it for us is Christ, who's the form giver. When poets are talking about these things, they usually use the clay of a statue. Say the, the clay is the matter. The form, the formal cause is what shapes it. The, the efficient cause is what creates it. The final cause is its beauty. Those are the four causes. That's Aristotle. But they use the, they say matter is um, the material cause, what individualizes it. Form will make it what it is. That's a good analogy, but it's only an analogy because there's nothing, nothing in existence. Not the clay, not dirt, not anything that, isn't, that doesn't already have form. Or it wouldn't be dirt, clay. So form for Aristotle is closer to Heisenberg's probability wave. It's like an avid, the Aristotle said it's an avidity for being. It's not yet until it meets with something else. In our case, we're human. It's matter. I don't want to go past this. It's this there's a whole metaphysical dimension of this that's too hard, but for the purposes of getting to this argument. It's important to see those distinctions. She goes on to say, the point of greatest importance here is this, the superior manner of knowledge includes the inferior, but it's quite impossible for the inferior to arise to the spirit. When a dog looks at a human being, does he ever see the form? Does he, can he ever allow, in, do the senses ever make a place for the universal? No, because the nature of the senses is you know something by its matter. Does the imagination make a place? No, because what the imagination does is see thing, an image, a shape, without matter. What does reason grasp? Reason grasps the form, the species. So is that clear? So none of the lower ones can see what the higher ones do. The senses can only grasp matter. 
The imagination grasps shape without it. We go into our minds. Do we carry the... Um, when you're in your bedroom and you have an image of your daughter, the body's not present in your mind, but you've got an image, right? An outline. It's like a picture. Reason grasps the form. It can get to the form that holds it all together. There's, there's no part of a thing, a tree, that doesn't contain its form, or it wouldn't be that. The intelligence um, grasps, um, how does he put it, she here? The simplicity of things as they are. Um, so the, the intelligence, the understanding can grasp everything below it, but none of the lower things can grasp any of the things above it. Now, so she's saying, we too often grasp things in the wrong way and come to bad conclusions. And it tends to arrest us in fate. God in his providence sees things that we can't. So this is moving towards a way of distinguishing the way we know good God. But she says um, on page 131, in the same way human reason refuses to believe that divine intelligence can see the future in any other way except that in which human reason has knowledge. If we, if we bring God's knowledge down to us, we're going to constantly misunderstand because we can't see the way he does. The mode of knowing is peculiar to each thing. Um, 134, since therefore all judgment comprehends those things that are subject to it according to its own nature, since the state of God is ever that of eternal presence, his knowledge too transcends all temporal change and abides in the immediacy of his present. Remember, it's like that center in the, the still point. Um, but um, on page 132, she says, we're not going to be able to get a clear understanding of the difference between the way men know and God without understanding the difference between perpetuity and eternity. Um, on page 133, whatever therefore suffers the condition of being in time, even though it never had any beginning, never has any ending in its life, extends into the infinity of time, as Aristotle thought was the case with the world, it's still, it's still, it is still not such that it may properly be considered eternal. This is crucial. Both Plato believed both Plato and Aristotle, most of the pagans believe the world was eternal because they couldn't see a beginning and couldn't see an end. They had no notion of a creator God. So um, most people looked at the world as if it were eternal. But um, Boethius wants, or philosophy wants to make a distinction that she really gets from Plato. And it's this. Its life may be infinitely long, but it does not embrace and comprehend its whole extent simultaneously. So even though you're going part by part, you still don't see the whole of it. Um, you can't comprehend its whole extent simultaneously. It still lacks the future while already having lost the past. So that that which, it embra that which embraces and possesses simultaneously the whole fullness of everlasting life, which lacks nothing of the future and has lost nothing of the past, that is what may be properly called to be eternal. Of necessity, it will always be present to itself, controlling itself. So there's a difference between perpetuity. Because in perpetuity, even though you can't ever go back far enough to its beginning or forward enough to its end, you will never be able to grasp the whole of it. Remember Eliot's, in my time present and time, time present and time future are not present in 
are also present. Go back to Bert Lorton and look at the opening lines because they they go back to this. But is everybody clear? In perpetuity, there's an ongoing sequence of events that seems eternal, but at no time in perpetuity can we ever see the whole of it. We can't contain it in our minds. God can, because for him, there is no past or future. It's an ongoing now. Here's one of the most remarkable things about Boethius' insight here. For Boethius, that means every present moment is like a mimic of the present in eternity. For us, it no, it no sooner here than it's gone. It's faded into a past, and what was here is already take, being taken over by something not yet. So Shakespeare used this word. He, he called the present moment, he called it time's lackey. It's like every present moment is a mimic, a lackey of that present in eternity. Now we've already made a distinction between modes of knowing. That what's really important for us is not just the thing known, that it's knowable, it's the mode of the knower. We have to understand the mode of knowing for us if we're going to understand ourselves. Because remember the whole point of this was we'll never get healed if we don't understand our nature. Perpetuity means it goes on seemingly forever, but you can never grasp the whole of it simultaneously. It's beyond us. For God, there is no past or future. There's only an ongoing present. So, does remember, this is, this. we're just about done. Sorry, you guys. Um... I love that description of the of the man sitting. He probably hmm. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and hope I do this justice. If a man is sitting down Hmm. Um, is it um, is it a necessity that he's sitting yes it is because that's what he's doing we can know that he's sitting is it our knowing that makes his sitting a necessity no because he could get up and walk around if he got up and walked around I hope it's clear that it's it's necessary that they're walking around it is that's what is in fact he makes a distinction between what he calls a simple um, necessity and a necessary on page 135. For there are two kinds of necessity. One simple is, for example, the fact that it's necessary that all men are mortal. Can we be alive and not be mortal? No. Just as um, it's necessary that when a man is sitting, he's sitting. Can't be any, can't be another way. And one conditional, as for example, if you know someone is walking, it's necessary that he's walking. For that which a man knows cannot be other than it is known. But this conditional necessity does not imply simple necessity. The fact that he's walking and you see him walking doesn't mean that your seeing necessitates it. Okay? This is crucial. So the point here is this. We can see a man sitting. It's, that's a necessity. He's sitting. He is. It it's, can't be other than it is. You can get up and walk around. Um, does the fact that we see him necessitate his sitting? No. 
But it does necessitate that knowledge. He's sitting. I know that. Does the fact that God sees something necessitate it? No. For God, there is no foreknowledge and past knowledge the way it is for us. Um, so his seeing something doesn't necessitate it. It doesn't mean it's predestined. For God, there is only a now. Now here's, if I can just use this image for a second. Imagine you're on a rock above a river and you're seeing a boat come down the river. Does your seeing that boat necessitate that it's there? No, it's just there, right? If the boat changes course, you see it, right? I'm trying to I'm trying to extend Boethius' argument because I want to I want to leave room here. I hope that helps. I'm, I hope it doesn't confuse. But so you're on a rock and you can see the boat coming. On the other side of a bend, there are robbers. Do the boatmen see? No, they're just on the boat. They can change course. They can get off. But if they continue going, um, there's a chance that so. Um, if this is a good analogy for God, does it mean even if God sees something, doesn't necessarily necessitate it, but he sees it. The fact that he sees it, does it mean he can't intervene? No, because if I were on a rock watching, I could holler out and say, you know, imagine God intervening. He doesn't see the way we do. We see in time. We're, we're caught in fate. What Boethius is asking us to do is to like the still point in the center. Remember, the closer you are to the center, the closer you are to the way God sees things. To stay close to Him, that's partly an act of faith, but it involves our minds. Um, does the fact that God sees something mean that He can intervene? No. Can He do it in a way at, a, at the expense of our free wills? No, because that's the one thing He values. We know historically of, of inter, we know of interventions like psychology psychological intervention. We know that with Paul it was pretty serious. God knocked him off his horse. I mean, that's how much Paul wouldn't listen, but that's a tribute to how zealous he was, you know. But generally it seems to me, now I'm speaking personally, it's safe to say God intervenes in lots of ways, but he protects our free will. That's the line of this whole argument here. The fact that God sees something doesn't necessitate it. That's the huge question. We all, we all have moments where we know a light goes on inside of us. It's not Plato, Aristotle's idea about seeing the forms, because remember, for a Christian, there is no reincarnation. St. Augustine's explanation of the forms was God's ideas, that we have these moments of, what he called moments of illumination. It's like God speaking, where something comes and we see. So there are lots of ways God can intervene. Do we always listen? Not as we should, I believe. But So the end upshot of all of this is um, um, all, all fortune, if we began to look at things from God's perspective, have to be good. Even where we do things wrong, he's, he's seen the good, trying to bring some good. Can he just simply impose his will? No, he can't, because the greatest thing he's given us is our free will. That means he has to work with whatever circumstances are there. Can, can we see the causes of them, like the guy who buried the, court in the tiller? No, but we know that they're there. 
The more intelligent we are, the more we look for them, the more aware. But we do this knowing God is seen infinitely more than we ever will. But what the whole push of this book is to help Boethius move in the direction. Remember, you won't get healed until you remember who you are, recall, to recollect who you are. Go back to your beginnings, go back to your ends. You're in amnesia, you've got to be aware to know. And what she's doing is taking him to this point where he gets closer and closer to God, knowing that he can't see the way God does, but he can help himself by getting past his blindness to get closer to the way God sees things, the way she has here. So, um, this I think the whole theme of, of, of um, consolation is taking Boethius home. It begins with Lady Philosophy Present. We don't see her disappear at the end. We don't see him getting executed. It's left up in the air. What we know is that she has quieted his mind, that she's calmed him, that, that the Boethius who ends the story is not in amnesia. He hasn't lost, he's not in a lost state anymore. He's made all these distinctions. He stands more closely with God because he's more aware even if he's aware that there's a lot he doesn't know. So let me stop there. Any any questions or you've missed a lot. This is catching up on a lot. I hope you read this. It's really it's really a good book. Any any questions? I know and it's when people say easier read. <laughs> It's pretty profound. They probably haven't really read it. Huh? <laughs> they probably haven't really read it. Because, do you see how close-knit the argument is? I mean, it is so tightly argued, and it implies Aristotle's physics, Plato's forms, and Christianity. What Boethius has done is taken the world of the pagans, the greatest, the greatest works, Plato and Aristotle, but he's brought them within the context of a Christian worldview. He's doing something neither Plato nor Aristotle could have done but that's so faithful to their thinking. You know, the truth of things that they did grasp. It's an amazing work, truly an amazing work. C.S. Lewis knew it well. Dante knew it. Chaucer loved Boethius. Dante did too. And I was telling Doc, it was in my letter. You know, if you were taking an under, if you were an English major, an undergraduate at Berkeley, and you were gonna do a, you were gonna start with, you know, Chaucer and Middle Ages or something. You read Chaucer and you would not have read Boethius. There are a million things you simply would not see. Would just not see. If I were an English courser, a teacher at a, in teaching that course in a major university, I'd require Boethius as our first reading. I mean, it would be a great step towards you know, asking questions about the way we know and how we know and what we know. And it's interesting that it's all kind of a negative proof. So, you know, like it, it, the difference between proving that something is because of what you know, as a pro, as opposed to proving that it can't be this because I do know that. So a negative proof. So, like for example, she goes through the process of looking at wealth and power and all of that, and pointing to the fact that those things won't ultimately satisfy you. How do you call that negative? Explain that. Well. It's negative. Like a proof by contradiction. Yes. <laughs> so if by virtue, if all of those things can't be it, then it must be something, something else. If, if you make an assumption, 
and then you get leads you to get a wrong conclusion, something that you know isn't right, then you have to rethink your yeah. hypothesis. And that's what a proof by contradiction is. I don't know if a pr proof by contradiction is the same thing as Richard. One yeah, of the one of the is, things that Middle Ages, yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that all the scholastics. If, if the reverse can't be true, then therefore this must be true. Mm -hmm. So that's a negative proof. Okay. One of the things that all the scholastics would have known is that you know God by remotion. You take away all these things. He, he's not this. He's not this. He's not this. He's and it shows you how much you don't know about God. Yeah. But the reality is that's the only way it could be. Because if we don't really know God, then we can't prove it directly, so we have to prove it indirectly. What they all say is you, you can't, and I think this is the soundness of, we, 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 make, we, we make our statements about God, our proofs on the basis of emotion, taking things away. The one thing that we can know about God is by effects. We can't know his, uh, we can know of his existence, we can't know his essence. You know, we, those those are things we grasp dimly. So the fact that there are footprints on a beach, you know, you, I mean, since we're all different, you don't know who may, but you know that something exists. To, so um, we very often have to take things away to get clear of the confusions that we're so often in because we know the wrong way. We think we know some things when we don't. <clears throat> Next week, sorry. Next week, I hope this was good. I hope this was. Huh? I didn't find it an easy read. Yeah. Because I didn't think about it a lot. And I didn't look at the arguments because that's me. It's rarely I have to go back and read something twice to make yeah. it out. But I yeah. wound up having to go back two or three times yeah. to figure this one out. Yeah. Especially in the middle of chapter three. Well, the, the last chapter for me was the hardest. One. Oh yeah, well, see, that's the most dense. I read that one very slowly. Yeah. I go back to it. I'm, there were a couple of passages I wanted to read and I lost them. The one about sitting and the, the, the ways of making clear the necessity of things and it was so important and it's it's something because I think we, we assume in the modern world we take for granted so much of what we hear from scientists who believe that everything is random, that everything's chance, there is no order, which doesn't make sense. Everything in nature is intelligible. How they, how they come away from that to me is say everything's random. is, But um, I just find those arguments um, really clear but difficult because it it means you have to look at things a different way. I mean, you go, go, you've got to go back and get clear in what she's saying. There's such good sense. I love the distinction she makes between the different modes of knowing and then the difference between fate and, and uh, providence. I often think about that. You know, God says, love your enemies. I often watch people that I think are particularly athletes because I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more disillusioned with sports. I grew up loving it. You watch people who become really corrupt, wealthy, spoiled, and I have to keep reminding myself of what Boethius says, that God allows that because once an evil man has done something for let's say he wanted to get wealthy, and now he's got that wealthy, he's got his wealth, he has to practice being virtuous to hold on to it. I mean, he has to begin to do things differently. So it's funny to look at people that I'm, I'm so ready to despise and wonder where's God working some good in that I can't see it you know but but if you take this seriously there is no bad what was that line there is no bad fortune there is no fortune that's not good you know that God is 
You know that God wants everybody home. He loves. How, how, what is he doing with people who are practicing evil? Remember, Boethius is here because be, people did evil things to him. Philosophy is taking him past that. It's a pretty amazing thing that she's doing. And she says, you've got to stop hating. Hate's not good. It's not good for you. You've got to remember if people are doing this, it's because they're in, <laughs> they've lost their minds. They're, they don't know what they're doing. So what does it say about the eschatological end? If, if, if good ultimately wins because there, in essence, isn't evil. It's the absence of good. And if good ultimately wins, how can there be an evil hell? Yeah. Uh, to me, it's a really... The, I mean, the answer, honestly, for me, I, I, I think it's... I, this is a personal belief. I think it's personally foolish not to believe in hell because if you take it away, it makes it easier for people to do anything. The, I mean, the obvious answer that Dunn... And he was well-read in metaphysics. If you look at the people in hell, one of the we didn't talk about this much, but one of the interesting paradoxes about hell is they can only be punished because they're in being. But because they've chosen to turn away from God, everything they do has lost their identity as humans. They're like machines. We've talked about, and that's exactly Boethius' argument that the people who do evil become un, inhuman. They're less than humans. When you start practicing evil and you're determined, look at Iago. I mean, for the, I, I, I don't know of a more evil character in all of it. Satan, to me, is almost innocent next to Iago. Because, well, no, you watch, you watch Iago work on people in a community and you're watching people's lives get destroyed. Um, I can't imagine Iago not in hell. Like Dante, they're all in being, but they've lost their power. They, they're machines. They're going. We talked about. It. They're, they're inhuman. They're go. They're they anything but human. They're just mechanically repeating this sin again. And that's what they chose. That's what they've got. So it couldn't be farther away from being. And yet their free wills are protected. They they've got what they want. Um, let's stop here because it's it's too late. do Chaucer. Relativity. <laughs> uh, don't. <laughs>